The idea behind having a revolving door of co-hosts for each individual episode of this podcast is that each one would have their own specialty that they could bring to the table based upon their personal interests. I am my brother Sylvan, I'm gonna call him in whenever I feel like doing a musical or something with Judy Garland in it, bring in Toby to talk about kids' movies, although he's more interested in horror lately, so we might be exploring that in later episodes. My sister Charlotte, on the other hand, her specialty is crap. So whenever there's some kind of cheesy, exploitative, no-budget, slasher piece of shit I want to talk about on this show, Cheryl's the one. And for the first episode that she picked, she picked a Roger Corman movie, which is very her. So talk about Chopping Mall. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. And as I said in the intro, Cheryl is joining us. Say hello, Cheryl. Cheryl. You know what? I, I've done like <laughs> almost 50 episodes. You're the first person to do that. Really? It's very low-hanging fruit, so you would think that it would be one of the first things most people go for. Nope, nope. You're the first. And uh, I feel odd saying this, but you have a special personal relationship with Chopping Mall. Oh, I do. It's very close to my heart. A little bit more than Phantom of the Paradise. Call back to another episode. <laughs> also beefs in this, too. Yes, he is. Oh. See, you can see the link between the two of them and why one led me to the other. When a certain movie rental business went out of business, a bunch of their VHSs became incredibly cheap to purchase. And of course, when I showed up, there were only certain movies left, the ones that are dear and dear to my heart. And this one had the best tagline of all. Oh, and I can't remember it. Something about uh, costing you an arm and a leg. Yes, it was a, this experience will cost you an arm and a leg, something like that. It was pretty great. And I mean, once you see that in a, a VHS that's only like $2 in the grab bin, how can you say no? For those of you who are too young to remember a period before streaming, when video rental stores were a thing, almost all of them had a copy of Chopping Mall there. We will be getting into that when we're talking about the film's legacy as a, as a cult hit. I would walk by Chopping Mall over and over again and never watch it because even when I was 11 and I would watch anything with boobs in it because the internet didn't exist yet, I still drew the line at Chopping Mall. I lived in the cult classic section. That was my favorite area. I tried desperately to get movies like um, Barbarella. It just so... I, I'm honestly, I was very surprised uh, to have never come across it before then. Yes, and you told me that the used VHS tape that had been rented to innumerable people over the course of decades cut out, like, midway through the second act. Yeah, and that didn't stop me from not only watching it, but forcing my poor high school friends to and middle school friends to watch it with me as well. Until that point when it just cuts out and then it's just that weird, not, like, staticky, but, like, the, the film has, like, the lines running through it. Yeah, it was, it was good. Love VHS. All right, let's get down to the plot breakdown of this because people go see Chopping Mall for the story. All right, the focus on this is four couples, Rick and Linda, Greg and Susie, Mike and Leslie, and then Ferdie and Allison, although they're being set up on a blind date with each other. They're all sneaking into a mall after hours to party because apparently this is a podunk town where there is no other place for them to go to. Like, there's no quarry, there's no friend's basement, there's no cool mom that doesn't care if they drink in the house as long as they don't drive home. I, by the way, I, I'm saying cool mom in scare quotes. It not, might not be obvious in a podcast. They work there, so obviously they want to spend their recreation time there as well and apparently there's nowhere else to go you didn't as a as a teenager hang out in the furniture store with your friends 
Yeah, especially since I work at the furniture store. Birdie's uncle runs the furniture store, and he's nervous about them, like, creating a mess or something. But they, So they're setting him up with Allison to shut him up because he's kind of a nerdy kid. He doesn't get out as much. They say he's too much of a Wally, which confuses me because did Wally mean nerd at some point? Honestly, all I could think of is Waldo, and everybody knows that he was too cool for school. Yeah, I don't know. So three guesses who the final couple are. No prizes for doing it correctly. Or the important bit here is that the mall has installed a state-of-the-art security system complete with steel shutters and three robots armed with hazers and tranquilizer darts because you need three robots to guard the food court. Also, if you're trying to picture these robots correctly, think the brave little toaster meets RoboCop and you're right on track. Your favorite part of the robots is that they have these little pincer arm things that look like the grabby device that mom uses to get stuff out from behind the couch. I mean... And they're always just, like, clanging them menacingly at the camera. It's pretty great just because, um, I mean, who isn't terrified of those things that T-Rexes are pictured as using in pop culture? With the exception of Ferdy and Allison, all the teenagers begin to drink heavily and have loose sex in the furniture store. And by have loose sex in the furniture store, they're all like six feet away from each other, but it's not an orgy. They're all having separate sex. And Ferdy and Allison are watching some public domain 1950s monster movie while it's happening. And the most unconvincing sex noises I've ever heard in a film are going on in the background. You're the king. You're the king. Oh, God, you're the king. If you uh, are familiar with other delightful 80s movies with inappropriate sex scenes, it's about as uh, comfortable as in the mannequin when he's discovered with her becoming a mannequin again in the showroom window. Thanks for mentioning that. Anyways, a freak lightning storm damages the computer controlling the robots, causing them to turn homicidal. They kill the technicians, one of whom is B from Phantom of the Paradise, <laughs> and they also waste the mall janitors before starting their patrol. Mike and Leslie are slaughtered as they leave the store. Leslie is not wearing pants. Mike is going out to get cigarettes or something. This causes the other teens to notice and scatter. The women flee in the air duct while the, the, the men try to sneak out another way. The men grab weapons from a sporting goods store. And by sporting goods store, I mean a place that sells lots of guns and then maybe some fishing tackle. Well, no, but also the sweatpants were 50% off, so that was really important. There were like five signs. And as you pointed out, the pants might be 50% off, but not the chase, which is fully on. <laughs> it was 100% on, but yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I butchered your groaner there. Anyways, the ladies break out of the air duct because uh, Susie gets too nervous and claustrophobic because of how hot it is. They end up in an automotive outlet where they uh, take some flares and gasoline. Allison uh, sequesters one of the flares under her shirt. That will be important later. The men appear to destroy one of the robots with a propane tank, and they move to set a booby trap in the mall's elevator. There's no suspense here. The robot writes itself, like, maybe three minutes later in front of the camera where you can see him. So it's not dramatic when he ends up coming back from the dead later on. It's not like, oh, wait, Jason isn't actually dead. He's got some more. Uh, it was cute, though, because he does his little robot push-ups with those little little pincer arms a few times. I mean, he's got upper body strength for a little robot, so that's good. Yes, he does. The robots ambush the woman and kill Susie by igniting the gas can that she's carrying. Greg vainly attempts to shoot them. They're very bulletproof, and it takes them a long time to figure that out. Rick finally drags him away. 
The teens then rigged the elevator trap onto another robot, destroying it in the process. Allison takes it out by shooting one of the propane tanks with a revolver at a ludicrously long distance, attributing this to her father being a Marine. I don't have a comment for that. I'm just speechless. Dirty, hairy guns aren't meant for target shooting. I suppose you could do one if you're good enough of a shot. The group hides in the restaurant where Allison works. Greg, upset over Susie's death, accosts Allison and Linda about letting her get out of the air duct. He then pulls a gun on Ferdy when he intercedes on Allison's behalf. Because, you know, Ferdy already has a big old boner for Allison. I get the impression she's the first person who ever made out with him. A gentleman's boner. He was trying to be classy about it. Yeah, yeah, he offered to drop her off at home before the steel shutters locked them in with the kill bots. Nice. Yeah, but, you know, she was just one of the tongue the hell out of him, and he was like, okay. I mean, it was a very alluring sci-fi crab movie that they were watching, so, I mean, when you're in the mood, you're in the mood. And also, the three sets of casual acquaintances awkwardly boning right behind you. How can that not tee you up? It's like Lady and the Tramp, but, like, tuned up to the max. Rick attempts to calm everyone down before Ferdy suggests that they try to destroy the robot control center, hopefully shutting down all the killbots in the process. The t- other teens readily agree to this. They start heading out to the control center, but they are attacked by another robot. Greg is thrown over a railing and falls to his death before the group manages to escape. The survivors discover that the first robot they defeated has recovered, as I spoiled for you earlier. They flee to a department store and attempt to trick the robots by using mannequins as decoys. Well, the robots attack the dummies, and one of them blinds itself because they set up mirrors behind the mannequins, and while the blazers can, like, burn through steel, they just bounce off the mirror and then hit the robot back. I'd comment on that, but then I'd be thinking more about this film than the screenwriter did. The blinded robot, however, slays Linda with an errant shot. An enraged Rick then rams the robot with a golf cart, killing himself but also wrecking the robot, and that golf cart kamikaze scene where he's just going three miles per hour over three feet and that is apparently the killbot silver bullet if anyone has ever been inside of a golf cart going at max speed that is exactly how you feel the whole time you're like yeah i'm gonna wipe out a robot Yeah, I haven't commented so far on the awkward rotoscoped 80s lightning that is throughout this film, but if you're as fond of 80s blue lightning as I am, this film is a feast for your eyes. I need you to promise me as my brother, and we have this on record now, that if I'm ever electrocuted and it's caught on film, no matter how tasteless it is, you rotoscope electricity going all around just like that. Final wishes. Yeah, I'll get right on that. Allison is cornered by the last robot, but Ferdy shoots it and damages its laser just before he gets knocked unconscious by it. Now that Allison is the final girl, she works through the pain of an injured leg, she had to jump off some scaffolding, and she flees to a paint store and improvises a trap by mixing paint with various thinner chemicals. She lures the robot into the paint store where a slick causes it to lose traction, She then ignites her boob shirt flare and blows up the robot. As daylight suddenly breaks, Ferdy comes to and he leaves them all with Allison. Point of order, booby trap. Carry on. Couldn't let that one go. No hanging fruit. Before we started recording this episode, we had a salad for dinner, and it was with Gouda cheese, and you were trying so hard not to make a Gouda pun, and and you almost made it. I had four opportunities. I let four opportunities go past. There's an after credit scene where an unidentified robot says its robot catchphrase, have a nice day. 
if have a nice day counts as a catchphrase. See, after one of the robots kills somebody, they always tell it to have a nice day. Anyways, the end. That's the movie. I mean, customer service is incredibly important. Everybody that's worked in retail understands that. Or at least has that drilled into them. The scene that I identified with the most closely was when they're hiding out in the restaurant and one of them calculates the amount of damages the robots did and how much they're going to owe the mall afterwards because clearly the mall is going to blame this on them. I mean, they did stay after hours when they weren't supposed to be there and there's no reason the mechanics were supposed to be in the building. Okay, before we go any further, now let's talk about Roger and Julie Corman. Now, Roger Corman is famous, perhaps infamous, as the director-producer of low-budget trash cinema from 1954 to 2008. He directed 55 films and produced 385. The most noteworthy of his directorial efforts was a series of loose Edgar Allan Poe adaptations that starred Vincent Price. I don't know yeah, I got those for you because they're low-budget Edgar Allan Poe adaptations starring Vincent Price that is right on the corner of your avenue. I had no idea that they were tied. That's so wonderful. There's connections everywhere. He also directed the original version of Little Shop of Horrors. And to give you an example of his hackery, the, the most famous one is that after Jaws was a big hit, he put out this poll over various other killer ocean animals and he financed Piranha because that was the most popular. I actually have an ex that, during the height of my, like, phobia of fish, tried to take me to see Piranha, like the remake. Uh, he produced both of them. All right, well, he's starting to lose some of my favor here. Anyways, in addition to his trash cinema accolades, he gave early career breaks to Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Sylvester Stallone, and William Shatner. They all worked for Corman before they became famous. Except for Howard, he was known for playing Opie and being on Happy Days, but he wanted the transition to being a director, and Corman gave him a shot. Splash? No, that wasn't Splash. He was already a name. I forget the name of the film that Howard did for Corman, but it was probably garbage. I'm just going to edit it in my brain, and it's, it's Splash. True happy ending right there. Julie Corman married Roger Corman in 1970. She also produced lots of terrible low-budget films, although she tended to favor family films rather than cheeseploitation horror and uh, science fiction trash. However, she did have this concept of doing a horror movie set in a mall and contacted some people for it. As with most features, the Cormans had a hands-off approach to Chopping Wall. The only thing Roger Corman really um, suggested to the filmmakers is that he wanted nudity which the creative team happily obliged him with. I mean, that's fair. There's a lot of lace involved with this nudity, but that's fair. The writer and director of this film is a gentleman by the name of Jim Wynorski. He agreed to write a screenplay for a very cheap rate if he could also direct the film. He wrote it with Steve Mitchell, a friend of his that he met at a comic book convention. They were both really into EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt, Weird Science, that stuff. They derived the story from the 1954 film Gog. Uh, Wynorski claims that he never saw the similarly themed 1973 TV film Trap. Julie Corman approved the story without a full script. They banged something together after a day. The screenplay took about five weeks to write. The original title of the film was Killbots, uh, which is sensible because this film does have killbots, but it has no chopping. They're not killbots, Ryan. They're uh, security bots. The guy who was selling it to the mall during the demonstration, where it was already installed in the mall, interesting sales pitch, was very clear that they were security bots. 
Yeah, you call them protectors. The script has lots of in-jokes referencing other Corman films, such as Bucket of Blood and Eating Raul. Actors from those films make minor cameos in the first act, sort of implying that this takes place in some kind of shared Roger Corman trash universe, which means that Little Shop of Horrors and Sharknado happened in the same continuity. Just chew on that. A lot to process. <laughs> As with most Corman productions, this was made very cut rate and with a very limited window of production. It had a budget of $800,000 and 22 shooting days. It was made at a mall that also hosted shoots for Fast Times at Regiment High and Commando. The mall liaison really hated the crew. I blamed them for scuffing a pole and pinned all of the other building damages on them throughout the entirety of the shoot. The mall's owner, on the other hand, really liked the crew. Or, to be more specific, he liked having nubile teenage girls to hang out with. Yee. Yeah, you're going to be saying yee a lot more in a bit. One thing Wynorski kept harping on about in the commentary is that the crew was always fighting the sun because they were shooting overnight while the mall was closed. And that caused sleep disorder issues amongst the cast and crew. You can notice this in the first scene, as Cheryl mentioned before, there's this bit where the Killbot sales rep is uh, giving a demonstration to a bunch of people who ha apparently have some kind of financial stake in the mall, and they are visibly nodding off in this scene. Wynorski mentioned that he kept his people awake by occasionally setting off firecrackers in front of them. For the stunts of this film, uh, as I mentioned before, Greg gets thrown off a balcony and falls to his death, and the crew set up this airbag for him to fall onto, and... The crew just sort of offered Wynorski a chance to take the plunge himself for fun, and he did, and broke a rib, but he hid this because he was a bit embarrassed, and also he wanted to finish the movie. Probably the most embarrassing thing you can do at work is break a rib. All right, let's talk about the cast of this feature. I looked at most of their IMDb pages. Uh, one of them is legit Hollywood scream queen, but the rest of them don't really have much of a track record. They've appeared in a couple other low-budget 80s exploitation movies and some soap operas, and yeah, that's about it. Except for Beef, which is, of course, the sweetheart of this show. Hashtag yep. what about Beef? Hashtag, Hashtag Beef did, did nothing wrong. wrong. The main figure in this film is Kelly Maroney. She is Allison, our final girl. She was cast because Wynorski wanted to sleep with her and figured that putting her in the movie would give him a shot. Yee. <laughs> Use can that and just keep putting <laughs> say all of these terrible things. I see your note. Maroney replaced Dana Kimmel, who didn't want to do nude scenes or anything sexual, so Chopping Mall was not for her. Uh, the next person that gets brought up is Carrie Emerson. She was cast because Wynorski liked how her butt looked in blue jeans. She also replaced an actor who was not super interested in doing scantily clad lacy underwear scenes. Was she the one that was wearing this jean-on-jean action? Yes, the, the, there's a part where the film says that she, you know, she's mechanically inclined because she helps restart a car with a screwdriver, and she's wearing some denim-on-denim -denim stuff. And you'd think that would come to play later on in the film if they felt the need to establish it. But, yeah, she doesn't, like, rig any traps or get onto the control center. Because, in fact, they kind of forget all about the control center after enough of them die. It's yeah, just... they stop trying to get to the third floor, like, right in the middle of their plan where, like, they lose people. They sacrifice people to get to the third floor, and then they just sort of run around. Next up is Susie Slater as Leslie. She was cast because Wynorski liked the shape of her boobs. You'll notice a recurring theme. Okay, I mean, okay. Wynorski does not describe the men in the cast all that much. 
The one male cast member he comments on at any degree is John Terleski as Mike. And he has one of those faces where, depending on what 80s movie he's in, he is picking on some nerds and about to get this comeuppance, or he's going to get murdered real early in a slasher movie. And he's in a slasher movie, so that's what happens to him. He is chewing gum in every scene he's in, including his sex scenes, including the bit where he's trying to perform cunnilingus on his date, and she's like, no! I mean, at that point, do you really want Mr. Thresh Gum to be uh, getting too close and personal down there? Well, she's willing to make out with him while he clearly has gum in his mouth. Anyways, this guy almost played Ferdy. He does not have the face for Ferdy. I also really enjoy that everybody... I I hope that Ferdy's parents named him Ferdy and that it's not short for Ferdinand. Just with the way that that guy moves around the movie the entire time. I hope that he's Ferdy. By law. To this day. Let's go into the reception of this film. It It was well received, right? No, no. It got terrible critical reviews, which is not a surprise at all. However, it did not perform very well at the box office at all. Wynorski blames this on the original title of Killbots. This is roughly around the time that Transformers started coming off, and he was under the impression that people were mistaking it for a kid's movie. Yeah, I mean, I would take our nephew to see Killbots. Why, Why wouldn't you? The film was pulled and the title was changed to Chopping Mall, allegedly at the suggestion of Roger Corman's janitor while he was in the midst of changing some light bulbs. I mean, sometimes everybody strikes brilliance. Despite the fact that there is no chopping in Chopping Mall, it is one of the all-time great exploitation trash movie names. The pincers do a pretty good effort for chopping for plastic little grabby hands. You're reaching a bit. With pincers. Set myself up for that one. Low-hanging fruit. The film fared a lot better under that new title, but where it really took off was cable reruns and its VHS release. I'm a little too young to know this, so if you're younger than me, you don't know this, but when home video first became a thing, most film studios were very reluctant to release their big movies on VHS tapes or Betamax or Laserdisc or whatever came before that. For the first 50 years of its existence, Hollywood milked a lot of money out of re-screening old movies and theaters afterwards. That's why Gone with the Wind has so much. I mean, it was a big hit when it first came out, but every 10 years or so, they would re-release it in theaters, and that would add to its ticket sales, and that's why it is so insurmountable when you look at its IMDb page. So, if you went to a video rental store in 1984, you wouldn't be able to see Return of the Jedi, but you might have Evil Dead there. And, yeah, fine, Evil Dead. And they reference Evil Dead in the movie. Yeah, and, th- and that's one of the niches that Chopping Mall filled. It was in every video rental store. Yeah, with that out of the way, uh, apparently somebody wants to make a remake of Chopping Mall. All the power to them. Seriously, thoughts and prayers, hopes and dreams. We do not live in a society that has malls anymore. I mean, they're, they're, those buildings are still there. I did bring this up before, but ContraPoints has this video about how the decrepit Victorian mansion became a thing. Because, you know, during the Gilded Age, all of these Victorian-era mansions were built in the United States. And with the Depression, they fell into ruin. And by the time they started making ghost movies in the 20th century, hey, you got this crappy building that you can have some ghosts in. Suddenly, that's where it's at. And I was thinking, hey, in the 2030s, abandoned shopping malls. I mean, I entirely support this dream. (laughs) You know, I don't know why there'll be death robots in there, but whatever, we'll make it happen. Anyways, it's option in 2011, it hasn't happened yet, so who knows if it ever will. What I think you're telling me then is 
you and I are going to make a movie. It must be willing to have extraneous nudity. And once again, this film crams a lot of superfluous nudity in its first act, even by the standards of a slasher film. Wynorski points out there's a part where two of the teenage girls are talking to each other, and there are just random topless women walking around in the background for no reason. Well, I mean, they just finished work at the pizza shop, and so they're all changing in the pizza shop locker room. That, that's what you did when you worked in retail, right? The background notes were like, we need more tits. Find some nubile teenage girl who'll walk around topless for three seconds. You gotta, you gotta support yeah. It's jobs, Ryan. It's jobs. They were just, they were helping people out. Speaking of Wynorski, I, I looked up what he was up to after Chopping Mall. He did a number of theatrically released exploitation movies after Chopping Mall was an unexpected success, but sometime in the 90s, he drifted towards even smaller budgeted softcore porn films that have five-figure budgets and two-day shooting schedules that air on Cinemax at like 11 in the, uh, in the night. He is particularly fond of horror movie parodies with atrocious puns in the title. Uh, his biggest hit from this period is The Bear Wench Project. He also did a film called Cleavage Field. I mean, how can you not admire titles like those? Those are gems. Gems in the rough. He says out of the o over 150 films that he has made, the only one he really regrets is the live-action Vampirella film he directed for Roger Corman in 1996. Is this a horror movie or a softcore? Uh... It's a Vampirella film, so the answer is yes. I'm going to have to look it up. Okay, so that concludes my notes for Chopping Mall. Is there anything that you'd like to bring up before we wrap that I haven't covered yet? Uh, the pants. A very serious issue about the pants. Well, it's not an issue, but I just felt like it was an adorable thing to point out. All of the couples, and you can tell how they're going to pair up, have matching pants. It's just very sweet little 80s, like, and then this, these are the ones that go to get. They're like cake toppers. That's, that's about it. Yeah, that is more thoughtful than I, I usually give a film like this credit for. Now, I think it goes without saying that Chopping Mall is a bad movie. Um, yeah, it does go without saying. Take it back. <laughs> <laughs> I broke I, you. I knew I would. I think, eye contact. I think the main question is, is it a fun bad movie? Which is purely subjective, but in a situation where there's mountains and mountains of low-budget shit and only a couple of them are accidentally entertaining anti-classics, I'd say Chopping Mall is one of them. I think that's one of the reasons that this film is fondly remembered by people who are fond of 80s cheese. Yeah, if you're trying to round out your at-home collection of horror movies that span the whole blockbuster rental experience, definitely add it to your cult classic shelf. On that note, I think that is everything that I could possibly say about a movie like Chopping Mall. Just one more hashtag beef moment, maybe? Okay, beef is in this movie. I don't even know his real name anymore. I <laughs> beef is in this movie for three seconds, but... Hashtag beef, beef did nothing, did nothing wrong. wrong.